Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. If you're a returning listener to I Was There Too, well done. If you're a first-time listener, even better done, because what an episode to start with. It's the Collected Stories episode, where I put together the best anecdotes and stories of the past year that this podcast has to offer. What is this podcast? It's called I Was There Too. I'm Matt Gorley. It's the show where I talk to people who had small but significant roles in iconic films, and it's just that simple. Today... Experiences on the set from Paul F. Tompkins to Paul Shear, from Piper Laurie to Amy Mann. Stories about briefcases, pancakes, tearing your own cheeks off, standing on desks, playing catch with your dad. And what kind of xenomorph alien would you be if you burst out of your own belly? Well, we're going to find out today. And not even today. I'm talking about right now. Chapter 1. Food, Flesh, and Pancakes, with Martin Casella from Poltergeist and Amy Mann from The Big Lebowski. Flash forward to uh, your relationship with Steven Spielberg, where he literally becomes your hands Yes, in the scene where you tear your face off. Yes. Take us through that. What we did was, because it was my first film, uh, I'll I'll be very graceful and say... It was hard and it was complicated. Let's just say at one point, Stephen said to me, you work in the theater, right? You always have to find your light in the theater. Otherwise, the audience won't see you. It works the same way on a soundstage. And I was like, I'm trying to stay on my marks and find the light and chew. I don't like turkey chicken legs. So I'm trying to chew something I don't particularly like. And there was a special effect gag with the steak and my memory of it is that we did 26 takes oh my God. of the of me just circling the kitchen putting the pan down turning the stove opening the thing because if you open the light too much it it got a flare on the camera it gave it a kick well so, you're, you're a complicated character too because i have to say when you just go oh i think i'm just gonna go get something to eat yeah. and then you go in and you're gonna deep fry a steak yeah or something <laughs> I, chicken? I, I, yeah your paleo it, diet exactly early you know, adopter, pa- paleo yeah. guy yeah. yeah and also later on i think i'm eating chips or yeah cheetos there's a lot of chips and, and crackers crackers and cheetos too. Yeah. yeah so the dog so eats them as well the dog does and um we 
so I did all that, and then yeah, then I go and the, then the thing turns into maggots, and that was really that was a great special effect. It was all practical. So they had a guy sitting under the kitchen counter oh. with a gigantic syringe, and Toby would yell, "Go!" Syringe, go. And the syringe would go and explode into the meat. Yeah. They actually had maggot handlers. Oh. I swear to you, maggot handlers because they were not allowed to kill any animal. <laughs> so there was the guy and I had to be so careful. And every time when they would put them on the floor on the chicken leg, I had to be really careful. So when we did the effect, what happened was that they made me put rice in my mouth for about an hour. And then they made me drink a lot of water, and I had to hold the water in my right and the rice in my mouth because that would look like maggots. They had no CGI then; they couldn't use real maggots. Um, so I'm standing there, and I couldn't talk. And they're like, "Are you ready to do?" And so, what we did was, um, there were no practical effects on my face. They just sort of painted me up. And then I was able to uh, sort of tear, you know, sort of scratch and this and that. And then, then the light splashes. And then in the original cut, they cut right to the dummy. I had been in a, in a special effects house for half a day up to my shoulders in plaster with things in my nose, straws. They made a cast of me. They made a 10 – this is even impressive now. All these years later, it was a $10,000 wig of my hair. <laughs> So they made me look like the dummy looked like me. And there, it was all controlled by cables and the eyes could move and the mouth could open. So what happened was they – in the original version, they cut right to the dummy and that was Stephen mm -hmm. because I said – I'm not doing this. Uh, I had trouble with the light cues and the, <laughs> hitting my marks. Uh, maybe since we can only do this once um, and because the dummy was there, it was spectacular. It was so beautiful. And, um, and all these guys were underneath with pulling, pulling, you know, wires. And, and I said, I said, Stephen, why don't you do this? I'll give you my ring. I'll give you my watch. You can put my shirt on and um, you can do it. So, and I stood there and I watched and Steven was like a five-year-old <laughs> pulling the thing and the big clumps of flesh. And my he seems to be smiling. Yes, yeah. he is smiling. He had such a good time. And the effect was very cool because this is my memory of it. And as we all know, memories get a little shaded by, by time. They had uh, jello in the, in the cheeks of the dummy that had been frozen, and they had two guys standing off camera with really hot, high-intensity um, hair dryers. This is similar to how they did the face melting in Raiders of the Lost Ark, yes, right? Yes, well, it was yeah, the same wax. people. Okay, yeah. yeah, it was the wax thing. Yeah. Yes, it looks very similar, actually, in Raiders when the guy, what is that one guy's face melts yeah, at the end. Yeah. And um, so they did that, and so the Pete, and that's how they got the chunks that look like chunks of skin and viscera to sort of fall in the, in the sink because they had these things on and the pieces of jello were going – red jello uh -huh. were going plunk, plunk, plunk. And Stephen's pulling away and he's having a great old time. And they got it all in one take. You really have a lot of leeway with playing a nihilist. I mean you can do nothing and say that's all on purpose. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And I – and it's – for some reason, uh, I got away with it. It's sounding like a good lifestyle choice for, for me. Yeah, just yeah. No, no effort, really. <laughs> no effort required. The best I could do to figure out what you say in that scene is, Für mich habe keine Pfannkuchen. Something about I'll have little pancakes. Do like you know lingonberry what? pancakes. Oh, you want yeah. lingonberry pancakes because yeah. then that's what he orders for Fonf you. Pfannkuchen, yeah. But I sort of took from your response to him saying that, like he ordered you the wrong thing out of spite or something like that. 
I, ca- I, I don't remember this exactly, but um, my my recollection of that scene was that um, uh, so it was Peter Stormare, yeah. who's Swedish, right? Right. And Flea, who is not. He's he's <laughs> otherworldly. Yeah. So um, and and uh, and the other guy was had never been in a movie before. Torsten Vogus. Yeah, Torsten. So Torsten had never been in a movie before either, and the two of us were like. Um, I'm a little, like, in case we're supposed to do or say anything more, maybe we should just prepare some dialogue. Wait, and you didn't even have scripted dialogue? You I just... think there was, like, a, a line, uh-huh. but, um, but it was just, it was so short that, you know, it was like, I'll, I'll have the lingonberry pancakes, and he says one other thing. So, uh, so he and I got together and sort of worked at a dialogue, and, and the, the, um, I think we were talking about like, do you have the do you have the room key? Like, no, I gave it to you. Like, no, I don't have it. So we were kind of having an argument about the key. Yeah. And just to have something to say, and uh, and then we when we got to to the scene, indeed, uh, uh, Ethan and Joel were like, okay, you guys are just talking in German, and then we'll like so <laughs> we were like, oh my god, I'm so fucking glad I prepared something. <laughs> How could they expect that of you? I That's... don't know, but they did. They did. And and Flea's... Um, so Peter Stormare was d- doesn't speak German, and Flea was just pretending to speak German. I think that's very clear. So they... <laughs> So they told him, like, you're just, uh, like, uh, nodded out, and you're just drugged out. And so, yeah. Really? So they had to kind of put him to sleep because That's he was... That's the impression I got, yeah. I, that he was, I, that, yeah. He was that his this German gibberish was a little too gibberish Because <laughs> he's going 110% in that film the entire time. Even yeah. when he gets hit by the bowling ball, I think, in the, like, the parking lot fight, his agony screams are so intense that it's almost off-putting, and I'm wondering if his German was the same way. Yeah, yeah. He was... My my memory of him is that he was super wound up all the time. That makes yeah. that aligns with what I have in my head. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's as is his bass playing, so is his acting. <laughs> Chapter two: Friends in Foul Language with Joshua Burge from The Revenant and Gilbert Gottfried from Aladdin. And Tom Hardy too. He was. Was um, he more ten- intense? When he was in character, he's very intense. You know, um, when he's not, he's 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 funny. Even when he's in character, he's playful. But him and I always had a a call and response that we always did. Um, and I don't know if this is FCC approved. Oh, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> anytime it's encouraged. <laughs> anytime Tom and I would see each other on set, or we'd be passing by, or in makeup room, or whatever, he'd always in character. Fuck you, stubby Bill. <laughs> And then I would respond, God damn it, Fitzgerald. And this would happen 20, 30 times a day on set. <laughs> it, it, was, it was great. But one day I was, I was walking somewhere. My head was in a different spot. And I don't know what I was thinking about. But Tom walked past me and, fuck you, stubby Bill. And I didn't respond. <laughs> and he came back and he kind of like tapped me and he goes, listen, mate. If you don't say God damn it, Fitzgerald, it doesn't work. <laughs> So, so from that point on, I, I knew I all right. I'll always say, "God damn it, Fitzgerald." There has to always be a balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a call and response. My success in this film depends on it. <laughs> yeah, that's why you were cast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you recorded, did you get to do much improv, or was that mostly in the audition? Oh, oh yeah. No, they they let me they let me play around. 
while I was uh, recording it, so that was fun. Did you ever take it into dark places? Uh, uh, a couple of times I'd have to say, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a kid's movie. <laughs> you don't remember anything that you did yeah. that didn't make the cut, oh, do you? but one thing that was totally in, this was in the Aladdin series, that uh, it wasn't a dirty thing, but the audience, someone, one woman in the audience took it as dirty. Uh, in the series, there's one episode where, uh, Jeff, uh, I mean, Iago and uh, the princess or whoever are running from a tiger who's chasing them. And I have to go, uh, let's get out of here. He's going to eat us like kitty chow. And some woman in the middle of the country somewhere wrote an incense letter saying uh, she was shocked that on a children's cartoon, they would say, he's going to eat us like titty chow. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to be called back and re-recorded where it's like, he's going to, he's going to eat us like kitty chow. Titty chow? <laughs> Chapter 3, The Interpretation of Myth with Phil Lamar from Pulp Fiction. The Interpretation of Your Alien Xenomorph Essence with Carrie Henn, Rico Ross, and Jeanette Goldstein from Aliens. And The Interpretation of the Smooth Operating Song Stylings of Chardin with Paul F. Tompkins from Magnolia. So speaking of myth, this briefcase, that's another thing where it's, it seems very <laughs> clear that Tarantino... If he has any intention, it's for you to have fun with on your own. Like, sort of art is in the eye of the beholder. You you say what's in there. But there are a million theories of what's in there, including, of course, like heroin and diamonds and things like that. But the big one is it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. soul. Mm -hmm. That's why he has a Band-Aid on the back yes. of his neck, because the devil takes it out through the back of your neck, and the mm -hmm. code is 666, and, you know, it goes a little crazy. You know, I, I – God, what year was that? Uh, I went back to uh, – do like a tea at my college. And of course, on college campuses, yeah. people were right. and, and some kid came up to me, like, not even at the, the master's tea or thing, but just like on campus, like, is it true? And he lays out that whole, like, because the Bible says it comes out through the head, which I've never heard. No, neither I've have I. Never, I've ever only heard. heard it in relation to this. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was faced with a thing, like, do I. <laughs> Actually, no. You know, at the time, I was a lot less um, audience uh, friendly uh -huh. than I am now. Like, I didn't realize that people cared and that people's myths are important to them. So I just said, no. <laughs> no, no. I, I the, think you may be doing him a service. The reason he's got a Band-Aid on the back of his head is because Ving Rhames shaves his own head. And he showed up at rehearsal with a Band-Aid on the back of his head and made Quentin go, ooh, you know, that would be interesting visually. Instead of just doing this as a, you know, over the shoulder too, like I was planning to, why don't I just not show your face? Because uh -huh. that's not in the script. <laughs> There's nothing that says Marcellus Wallace is not seen. Interesting. The, the Band-Aid is there because of Ving. And, when, and on, on set, I asked Quentin, what's in the briefcase? And he said whatever you want it to so be. even that early he knows what he's doing but what literally was in the briefcase a light 
A light. Okay. Small light. So that's the uh, answer. Yellow light, reflective. Uh, yeah. A, a light is in a, the briefcase. A, a low watt, it. a low wattage uh, yellow bulb. I was thinking about for this episode. I often do a second little segment at the end about the myth of the briefcase, but it seems pretty clear that it's a whatever you want it to be. Right. But B, it's a light. But the funny thing is, I just took that as the answer. I'm like, oh, okay. And then years later, I went. Wait, that's not even a full answer. Uh, is it whatever I want it yeah. to be? What do you want it to be, Phil? Or does, or is it whatever whoever opens it wants it to be? I think or it's the does, latter. Is it the, is it the viewer? Oh. Is it like the audience? It's like it is whatever you want it to be. Or is the person who opens it seeing? I think it's both. You know, but see, there's a difference. If it's whatever, if John Travolta opens it up and sees whatever he wants to see, then it's a magical briefcase. You know, if it is a concept, it is the most precious thing ever, um, then the, it is whatever the audience wants it to be. I didn't know we'd go this deep. You know? I'm loving but, it. And, but see, now here's my thing. I believe it is the latter, that it is whatever the audience wants it to be because uh, Vincent is a functionary. Vincent is opening it to check. Uh-huh. Vincent has to be told what to check for. So he he wouldn't have his own notion of what it is because he already thinks it's something else, or or maybe Marcellus like so. And yo, when you get the briefcase, <laughs> check make sure it's like. Well, what is it? It's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe that's what Marcellus told him. I I want to know what you want it to be. What what would you think it would be? Well, me as Marvin, I would think it would be not money. Because then we would just take it. Yeah. Although we we couldn't open it. Um, I would think that it was for Marvin. He'd want it to be drugs or diamonds. Diamonds, not drugs, because drugs are bad. Yeah. But like diamonds, and then we give them back to the guys, and we get like ten millions of dollars. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. Me, Phil. What did I want it to be? I want it to be. Um, I guess Phil wouldn't wouldn't care about the heroin. <laughs> Good to know. Let yeah. it be. Well, I remember my day. response in seeing that when he first opens the case and there's the yellow light. I'm all I could think about was Raiders of the Lost Ark when they look into the Ark of the Covenant and it's right. a swirling mass of clouds, and that's I think what I expected and want it to be. You want it to be something holy. Yeah. So right, yeah. That, for want, them anyway. So you want a magical briefcase in the story in the movie? I did. I wanted some sort of. Not supernatural, but just heavy philosophical implications that right. goes along with this movie that's full of random acts of violence would right. be amazing. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's yeah. the thing. If it is that, you can't take that out of the briefcase. No. <laughs> that is the, br- portal. the the briefcase, yeah. yeah. The briefcase is something unto itself. You know? And yeah, that's true. Because the, the guys, we would never have been able to see what was in the briefcase. Right. We just yeah. we just heard on the street there's this briefcase and Marcellus Wallace wants it. Yeah. It's the perfect MacGuffin. All right. Uh, we don't have much time left, but I'm going to give you guys one last um, question that you can all answer. And uh, it's a bit of a personality test. So in, in the third Alien movie, the alien bursts out of a dog or an ox, depending on which version you're into. But it takes on the physical aspects of whatever it bursts out of. If you didn't die by fire or explosion or cryo seal breaking and drowning and were killed by an alien or burst open by an alien, what trait of yours would it have physically, emotionally, or personality-wise? My character or me? 
like either one. Holy shit. Let's go with you. We're so opposite, though. Let's go with you, Carrie. Maybe loyalty? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a, that's a good trait. For, yeah. Okay, good. Loyalty and honesty. All right. Jeanette? Oh, my God. Okay, so I, didn't, I haven't seen the third one. Um, let me see. Um, it's just whatever your oh, essence okay. is. Uh, my essence? Yeah. Um, kvetching. Okay. <laughs> so an alien bursts out and just immediately starts just, kvetching. Oh, my God! You know. <laughs> It's so hot. It's so hot. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, there's <laughs> Alien 5 for my money right there. Rico? Um, I think it would... That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cool question, man. Uh, I, just off the top of my head, I think it would be passion and compassion. Oh. Going both ways with that. All right. <laughs> so we have you a know, very... No, Arturian has an influence <laughs> on everything. A loyal alien, loyal and honest alien, a kvetching alien, and a passionate and compassionate alien. Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, give a big round of applause for Carrie Henn, Jeanette Goldstein, and Rico Ross. And the table read is all the cast of the movie. And um, I got the script so... Like, they were supposed to give it to me the day before, and they never did. And so... I am like frantically trying to make sure I'm consulting this list and then looking back to make sure that I am saying all the things that I'm supposed to say, playing all these different roles. And of course I missed some lines. So there would be like a silence and then I would realize, oh no, it's me. I am grinding this to a halt. Oh, God, and this so, makes me so tense. Oh, I can still feel it now. And like when I talk about next it, to Tom Cruise, literally yes. next to Tom Cruise. There was one seat left and Tom Cruise was the last person to arrive and he <laughs> sat right next to me. And it was a very weird experience. And so by the time I get to the set, well, now I've already blown it at the table read. And so I'm just freaked out the whole time. The only thing that was kind of calming was Mary Lynn, who was a friend of mine. We'd known each other for years at this point. We, <laughs> it was the two of us, because F Philip Seymour Hoffman's in the living room being filmed. And uh, uh, so it's the two of us on the phone with the sound guy. And for some reason, and I don't know how this started, we kept singing Sade songs. I don't know that I could go any deeper than Smooth Operator. What? Sweetest taboo, Matt. Come oh. on. <laughs> so we... <laughs> That's right. You sucked that down. So we would sing as much Sade as we could remember. And first it was just me and Mary Lynn. I don't remember why it started. And then eventually the sound guy started, like the sound guy was like, hey, what about, uh, what about this one? And then he would start a song. And we had enough time to like work out the harmonies and stuff. This, do you think theoretically if he was into it, he was probably recording it. This might exist somewhere. Perhaps it does. Oh, Perhaps it does. tapes. Yeah. Please. <laughs> Chapter four, making comedy with Piper Laurie from Carrie. And breaking comedy with Paul Shear from Meet Dave. Let's uh, start with Carrie. I'm so fascinated by the fact that you took Carrie to be more of a comedy than anything else originally, and you seem to be relishing in the melodrama of it all so wonderfully. Sissy Spacek was reportedly very serious in her immersion in the role. What was the dynamic between you two where you were having so much fun with the role and she was taking it seriously? Well, I think it was out of desperation. I... <laughs> I hated the script. <laughs> I thought it was really stupid. And my 
ex-husband said, well, you know, Brian De Palma has a comedic approach to everything he does. And I thought, oh, that's, that's the secret. This is supposed to be a satire. So on the basis of that, I took the train from Woodstock into New York, and I met with Brian, and who struck me as a lovely, like a young rabbi. <laughs> and, and we got along nicely, and I took the train back to Woodstock, and by then I heard that he wanted me in the movie. And so I tr- was trying to find a way to, to do it. And I, I was supposed to report in a month or so in L.A. to rehearse. And I, I started inventing things to, to be funny, a lot of <laughs> physical business. Uh, one scene where she's, uh, Margaret's supposed to uh, abuse herself, tear her clothes, and I thought, well, make the, the uh, wardrobe person's not going to put up with that, having a new dress for every take. <laughs> so um, I pulled myself across the room by my hair in what I thought was a really broad, funny way. And I did it twice in a rehearsal in Brian's apartment. And he said, Piper, you, you can't do that. You're going to get a laugh. And I so I was so shocked. And I'm, I'm, I, and he was serious. This was your first moment realizing that this was not yes, entirely a yes. Yeah. So I, I was too embarrassed <laughs> to say, oh, I didn't understand. So I just tried to just tip over the line a little bit. And uh, I um, I did pretty much the same thing, but with a different intention. It was, I sort of went deeper into the em- true emotion of the moment. Yeah. But you, I still pulled my hair <laughs> across the room with that. It's easy to see your approach on the character, especially in the scene where you throw coffee in Carrie's face. Your comic timing there is, is almost precision, and her non-acknowledgement of it feels <laughs> like a heightened <laughs> – comedy and it, it uh, I can easily see when I was reading your or listening to the audiobook of learning to live out loud it made more sense to me of that movie in in your eyes than the way that I think it was intended well I I thought that the character was kind of cliche from the beginning um to the way she wore her hair and a tight bun and I I, could, I was just looking for things that were interesting to me and also, uh, after I went back back to uh, Woodstock, the first thing I did, I went into the city and I saw the last thing Brian had done, which was Phantom of the Paradise, which was so theatrical. It was so big and free, and I thought, oh, this is that's what he likes, and that's what I'll do. And it seemed appropriate <laughs> for the character, so I wasn't afraid. And he never stopped me. That was the great thing. He never made me feel inhibited. Occasionally, I would have to sort of prep him about the direction I was going to go in, like in the the last scene when I get killed and and um, and I kill her. I um, wanted to be sure he didn't interrupt me, because then I would have really gotten all um, tight and uh, inhibited about it. So I sort of we we met on the street outside the soundstage just before. Uh, we were to shoot the scene, and I said, I have I have a thing I'd like to try for the scene, that when she's killed, when she's dying, um, that this is not agony or pain for her, but it's, it's ecstasy. This is what, you know, the death of her daughter and giving herself to Christ and herself. That was, you know, the ultimate. A release and of And so it would be ecstasy. So uh, that's why I played it so broadly <laughs> and in another direction. <laughs> 
and I and I'm on this this platform, and I'm like, okay, so is there anything that I need to know? Because there's literally nothing there. It's a platform on green. There's no propage. There's no is that word. I don't. Know. There's no. There's nothing. I'm this in is a pure Star Wars prequels territory. Exactly. Here, just void. I'm in a gray costume with a um, a smock on, and the smock in the center. Uh, has a little butt. Uh, that's it. A little butt on the thing. So I'm, and I'm up there and I go, uh, what, do I, what am I looking at? And the director looks at me and goes, I don't know, man. It's a ship. We should also say that the reason your name is Lieutenant Buttocks is because all of these miniature aliens yes. operate one specific part of this giant ship. So like exactly. Brian Husky is Lieutenant Right Arm. Yes. And everybody has their mission. So you literally operate the butt. Exactly. And so, and so I'm like, he goes, it's, and this will come into play in, in just a second, because uh, he goes, it's a ship. And I go, oh, oh, okay, but yeah. Does yeah. he have that kind of attitude? Like, oh, yeah. It was, it was not a friend. It was like, what are you asking me? It's a ship. I remember being like, oh, I'm an idiot. Like, oh, because, like this but breaks I, my heart. You know, and I, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do, you know? So uh, I, was ner- I was nervous, you know, a little bit nervous. So I'm, I'm doing this thing. I have the, and they give me like an iPad um, and uh, before iPads. And, uh, and I basically I have to turn into camera and go, sir, we had a gas leak. It was silent but not deadly. Great line for yeah, Lieutenant Buttocks. It's, it's still Classic in the joke. Film. Yeah, classic joke. And so um, I, I turn around. I do my line. Sir, we had a gas leak. It was silent but not deadly. And cut. Man, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, what? He goes, you got to like play with the controls. And I go, oh, uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, you got like a control over here, control over here, you got to look in the screen. I'm literally, again, I just want to say it again. I am on a platform, a race platform with nothing. So he's like, yeah, look at the screen, you touch the control, and you do the thing. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, 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 sure. You know, now I'm a little, a little nervous, a little bit more nervous. Again, action. Sir, we had a gas that goes silent, not deadly. And I hear him yell, more military, just yelling it. I'm like, sir, we had a gas leak. It was silent, but not deadly. Angrier. Sir, we had a gas leak. Now, like, I, I'm like, I'm doing a scene with no one. It's, it's a line. He's like, um, just like more matter of fact. You know, it's, it's the line is the line. Can and, I just pause to say yeah. that the guy who ends up doing this does none of those readings? <laughs> there you go. So I, well, you this, is, this will blow your mind where it goes. Okay. So I'm like, and, and I'm like, I'm freaking out. And, and, and he goes, uh, and again, how can you mess up that line? I could say that anyone... You put him in that it's, – yeah. it's, it's not acting. Right. You're just saying a statement yeah. and you're just saying – and I see him walk off set, like walk just by. And I go – and I know enough to be like something is wrong. So now I'm standing on this platform alone. I can't get down because I need to be like <laughs> craned up there. Um, oh, I don't know what's going on. I see the director walk off. I see the AD walk off and no one's telling me anything. At which point, every pore in my body starts to sweat. Like, poof, poof, poof. And then a couple minutes pass. Minutes. And uh, the AD comes over, lovely guy, whoever that AD is, awesome dude. And he says to me, hey, we're having some camera problems. Um, oh, no, can we camera go back, problems. Can we go back to – we'll send you back to your trailer. And I said, okay, knowing there's no camera problems. Yeah. What goes on? So I go back to my trailer. I'm waiting. I'm like freaked, freaked out now. Then all of a sudden, knock on the door like – I open the door. It's a guy I've never seen before. Older man, lovely man, nice guy. Opens the door and he goes, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Oh, no. And I go, sure, come on in. Now, I told you that these trailers are tiny. (laughs) 
So uh, when he enters, and he was a big toilet, he's a big man. So he literally pushes me back into the bathroom area. So now I'm essentially over a toilet, and you're still in costume, right? Still in costume. (laughs) And he goes, "This is the worst part of the job." And I'm like, "Oh God!" He goes, "We're gonna recast you," and I go. Oh, okay, okay. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we just um, we want to go a different way with the part. And I go, oh, I, I'm mortified, mortified, and immediately angry because I'm like, motherfucker! Like, I came here specifically. I could have been in New York doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, which is my show and the 24 hours. And and I'm I'm like upset and mad. I'm just trying to keep it all together. I'm like, okay, okay, yeah. And he's like, you know. But look, we would um, would like to offer that you stay and be an extra today, and you know that way you get residuals. And I'm like, uh, thank you so much. I, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. I don't want to go from a, a, a part where I was in like three or four scenes to an extra. And I didn't say that, but I was like, no, I'm fine. He's like, hey, well, if you leave now, you're not going to get residuals. And I was like, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, and he's like, okay. And then he goes to leave, and he goes up. You know, um, actually, before I go, uh, can I get your your smock? And I go, what? He goes, yeah, let me get your smock. So I go, uh, okay. And I give him my smock. Like, I literally un, like, sheath myself. I'm like, here it is. I give him my smock, and he leaves. Second later, costume person. She walks in. She's like, hey, do you have your smock? And I go, no, the, that guy just took it. She's like, oh, okay, um, we need to give it to the um, video playback guy. I'm like, what? And they go, oh, we recast you with the video playback guy. I saw that. Chapter 5, Back to School with Robin Williams, with Lisa Jacob from Mrs. Doubtfire and Kurt Leitner from Dead Poets Society. And then while you were working on this, if I'm not mistaken, you were basically kicked out of your high school, right, for having left too often to do work, right? Yeah. So uh, Doubtfire was a a long shoot. My school was in Canada and was not really accustomed to dealing with a child actor who was away more than she was in, in, in school. And so uh, the process for a kid who works is that you do three hours of school a day on set, as, you know, in addition to, to whatever you're doing for the film. And so back then, of course, pre-internet, you're mailing all of the schoolwork back and they mail you stuff. So it is uh, pretty labor intensive and teachers were not thrilled about kind of the extra work that they had to do with that. I've always heard that there are tutors on set, but I thought that that was kind of their own curriculum. I didn't know that you had to correspond it back to your actual high school. That does seem really complicated. It was really complicated. Yeah. But- and, and and my my school just wasn't up for it. So they they just kind of asked me like, hey, you know, can you do us, do us a favor and just not come back? <laughs> I, I don't mean to generalize, but that sounds so Canadian that they would kick you out by asking you to do them a favor. <laughs> it is very Canadian. Uh, so, the, so the fact that you were in Hollywood films, not that that should mean anything to education, but that didn't buy you anything with these people? I like Canadians. I don't care. <laughs> So what happened then? So obviously that is uh, a little bit upsetting to a 14-year-old to realize that her high school had just uh, basically shut down her her education. 
so I was clearly upset about that. Robin, being the the sweet soul that he was, asked me what was going on. When I explained the situation, he said, well, here, I'm writing a letter to your high school, to your principal. Here it is. You know, let's let's send them that. And the letter was just so generous and lovely and just said, Lisa is trying to balance a career and her education. Please help her and support her in this and don't kick her out of high school. And so we sent the letter to my principal and didn't hear anything back from them until later I found out someone actually told my my dad this, that the principal um, got the letter he framed the letter and he hung it up in 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 the office oh, of man. the school. Yeah. So it was not uh, it was not successful in the end. But it, I think it just speaks so much to to who Robin was as an individual that he would kind of put his neck out and and do that for me. And the fact that it it didn't work is kind of beside the point, yeah. you know? Oh, it's course, like you, yeah. you you stand up for your friends. You do the right thing, and um, and that that is always going to be something that's really precious to me. How long did you stay in contact with him? We stayed in contact for a while after the filming, but, you know, and then it's it's sort of life happens and, and everybody's traveling and working and all those sorts of things, and it's pre-Facebook, so it's harder to keep in touch with people. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we, we lost touch, but... It's funny because I think I always assumed that we would all get together again, whether, it, you know, there was a lot of talk about Doubtfire too, but whether or not that happened or if there would be some reunion or some chance for all of us to, to get back together again. And so that was, I think, a really, um, a really eye-opening thing you just you you take so many things for granted that mm-hmm. people are going to be around and i really wish that that i had had a chance to to let him know what a huge impact that had on me that he he was really so supportive and 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 kind to me i have a question for you about the classroom of mr keating did you get to pick your own desk or was it assigned like in school? Keating doesn't strike me as the type of mean teacher that would assign seats. Wow. Uh, well, your instincts are, are spot on. It was really uh, an amazing situation. The director had us enter the classroom and he planted certain key actors in certain key desks, uh-huh. about five or six, all setting up the final scene where people stood on their desks. He knew where each student was going to sh- be standing in the final shot of the film. So on the first day of shooting, he set up the last shot of Keating's exit. Ah. And by doing that, uh, everyone, those chosen few, including Ethan Hawke, whose legs, uh, whose, um, his point of view is at the final moment with Mr. Keating. Yeah. Um, they planted all the people in their desks, and uh, one student had to – they were shooting between his legs. Then after they planted those guys, those guys sat down. Then Mr. Weir – invited us to pick our own seats and so we all scrambled what was yeah what was the thinking in choosing the seat that you chose you're in the if you're facing the students in mr keating's position from the head of the class you are in the front row to the far left in correct, the corner, right? correct with the so, pencil behind you with the pencil 
the uh, in my genius instinct, I said front row seat, yeah. best seat. No, <laughs> I went. I went to the head of that row, which was just outside frame with most of the POV shots of Mr. Keating. When did you realize that? Well, when I saw the movie. Oh, okay. So you didn't see any monitor shots? And... No, Ugh. I couldn't do that. So in reality, I'm right there on the front lines. Nothing better, honestly. Uh, but when you saw the finished product, we're like, no. Oh, yeah. And then good since that moment, we lovingly called that row the Dead Row Society. Because <laughs> <laughs> the first two to three seats were like blocked off. And it all depends on the um, aspect ratio. Uh -huh. So when you – I think when the DVD was first released, it, it didn't – it wasn't in widescreen. I think you had the option. Okay. So that's right. It was one of those flip over discs. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because I had it, I think. Right. Yeah. And so when I saw, I was like, when I saw the widescreen, I saw more of myself back, because back, I was the yeah. head of the Dead Row Society. You know? Okay. Well, I don't know that I plan to ask you this question this early in, but since you said that this was all, this was all spaced or this was all blocked around that final one hundred percent shot, when most of the students stand in allegiance with Mr. Keating. From what I can tell, your character of Lester doesn't stand. You're not Team Keating. That's correct. There were some students in that oh, classroom that were conflicted, and I learned a word that day. Did you get to choose, or were you assigned your <laughs> support we, or not? No, we were assigned. Okay. We were absolutely assigned for the aesthetic of the shot. Um, ah. But in doing so, we were defined as characters in that moment. Sure. And so at that point, I then had to join a group which I was – uh, which I learned was called the anti-devotees or devotees. Oh, wow. So I was not a devotee of Mr. Keating at that point. And I was conflicted. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I see like scenes when he's doing his Shakespearean improv that you are very much in, on board. We are. We are. Yeah. But in the final moments, it was that, you know, that, um, that pressure. Conformity yeah. or um, yeah. non-conform. In and a way, you, you were not conforming, proving his point. Just to, like uh, yeah, yeah, Nuanda. Right, right. Choosing not to, um, but yeah, yeah. That was and but again, emotionally, we were defined in that moment of people standing proud to support him and other students who are conflicted. So that that's the you know the character twist. Chapter six, the final chapter: family and fathers, with Peter Jason from They Live and Dwyer Brown from Field of Dreams. Now, you come to me on this show because John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants contacted me and told me that he was your son-in-law, correct? Correct. And that there's a story in my there? His wife, Robin, is my daughter. Yeah. And is there some story in, in how you came to know him and your daughter that he said? There is. Yeah. Do we want to talk about it here? No, it's up to you well, completely. Yeah. I got a girl pregnant in college, <laughs> and uh, she gave the baby away without telling me about it. He so, hasn't told me the story, so I don't know. 44 even years later, I got an email. I'm, I've been married for 44 years. 44 years later, uh, I get an email saying, Hi, I'm Robin Sue Goldwasser from Nyack, New York, and you're my birth daddy. I went, Hello. What year was this that this happened? This was like six years ago. Oh, my God. And uh, uh, I was, yeah, about six six years ago. And, and, uh, so she said, John and I are coming out for the Grammys. Can we meet? And I went, yeah. And she presumably knew who you were at this point, right? It, she some, took, you know. Some research knew you were an actor. After, her, after the parents who raised her died, she started the search. And it took five years. And they don't allow 
adoptees to know anything about any they, they give them no information and so she kept hounding him and hounding him and hounding him for years and and different case uh, uh, workers and eventually the first one that she went to called her up and she said I know who your birth father is by law I'm not allowed to tell you his name but if I were to be your father, I probably would be the bartender in 48 hours. <laughs> and so she immediately went to IMDb, looked me up, found out who I was. And uh, and she knew a friend who – she saw Deadwood on there. And she knew a friend that knew Molly from Deadwood, and, uh, and Molly gave her my email. So she emailed me, and she came out. I, I, I was like looking at my mother, you know, same voice, same laugh, same, you know, looks just like my mom. So, uh, you know, wow. I fell in love with her immediately. And, 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 and John was with her and we met and, uh, and it was on. We're I had to get a new phone uh, program because we were texting each other 80 billion times a day. Here's my, uh, what I'm having for lunch. I know you there's know. so much to catch up on. Oh, we had, it was, God. it was, it was, it's been nonstop for I the last I can't imagine years. getting So much fun. I started making her some furniture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sending her birdhouses and, oh, great. And she's knitting socks for me. I mean, we, it was, it's full on, you know. That's wonderful. On. To find out Love of our lives. Is. My wife is just like fantastic with it and it's been great. The other thing that was interesting too is before I had even seen this film, I always thought about what it would be like to meet my dad when he was my age as if he didn't know that we were father and son and we would just meet as friends in a bar or something like that and what that would be like. What side of my father would I see like that, mm-hmm. you know? Have, did that ever occur to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I've thought about that many times myself, you know, particularly once your father's gone. And, you know, I, I, for the book, I was researching it and seeing pictures of him in, you know, World War II and all that stuff. And he's like, you know, that he's my age. What is he thinking about right now when, when, you know, my mom or when somebody else is taking this photo? Like, he's leaning against this. This is his first car. Does, how does he feel about that he... Is this the car he loved or is this what he could afford? You know, like all those things that, you know, you go through yourself and now I have a son who's 16 and, you know, I look at him and I think, oh, God, I know what he's thinking. I know <laughs> how much he hates sitting here in the car with me right now. But, you know, I mean, it, so so it, it's, it's pretty interesting that way. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the appeals of the movie is I think – it is kind of amazing to think, would I be friends with my father if we were the same age? I mean, would we hang out? Would we have the same sense of humor? Would we want to do the same things, you know? And, uh, you know, particularly because I just lost my dad, it was a, uh, it was a fun thing to think about. Uh, and what's interesting about this, uh, in the movie, you know, it, it, for those of you who remember, uh, uh, Kevin says, hey, dad, want to have a catch, the very, you know, last line of the movie. And, uh, and I say, I'd like that. But uh, when we shot the movie, he didn't say dad. He didn't say the word dad. And I, I sort of loved that about the script that, that like, you know, the, the magic of that field, like when you see uh, Shoeless Joe can't step out of the gravel, he somehow knows it. You know, mm-hmm. nobody told him, but he, he really, you know, they invite him to co- for coffee and he says, I don't think I can. And when Doc Graham or when, uh, you know, Moonlight Graham steps across to yeah. save the, the, you know, to save Karen uh, – you know, he, he realizes he's giving up this opportunity, you know, and, and all these things are just, you know, they're never addressed with, with dialogue or with, you know, rules or anything. But I loved playing that scene where I couldn't say 
dad or you know i couldn't say son and he couldn't say dad you know that was that was kind of fun to play but uh you know they did audience screenings and and a lot of the audience was uh you know they thought oh it's so cruel of 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 ray kinsella not to say not to tell him this is his dad you know this is like so they ended up changing that and putting the word dad in. If, if, if those of you who watch it, you can see that they, they put it in over when the camera's on me, so right. you can't see it. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I like that, you know, kind of unexpressed uh, idea of it. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it is kind of fascinating to think about, about, you know, what would it be like to, you know, hang out with your dad, you know, before he was trying to tell you what to do and you were <laughs> resisting him and all that stuff. And yeah. you were just, the you know. The pressure's off. Yeah. How's it's been it's been pretty interesting to uh you know now i've got you know ballparks all over the country have me come in and play catch with people and and it's it's kind of great you know especially in that you know one of my only regrets about that movie is that i never got to watch it with my dad you know mm-hmm. and so when i get to uh to kind of be there with people who've lost their father and play catch with them and and stand in for their father and 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 they stand in for my father it's kind of like it's kind of just what that movie's all about, and and it's really, it's really heartwarming to to have been thrust into that role, you know. And, uh, so. Well, that's it, everybody. Thank you to all the guests, future, present, and past. I think I got that backwards. That have been on this show. There's a whole slew of brand new episodes coming for the rest of the year. And if you can connect me to a guest, please email me at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. Best not to try Twitter or for God's sakes, not Facebook. You can also find more at IWasThere2 on Twitter or at Matt Gorley on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd. And until next episode, see you next episode. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.